Hello and welcome back to this episode of the High Yield Podcast of Medicine. In this episode, I will begin discussing the foundational basic science knowledge needed for understanding the immunodeficiencies and immunopharmacology. And we'll finish the episode by reviewing a high-yield chart on mechanism of action for drugs categorized under immunosuppressive agents. Even though this episode may sound like a lot of basic science, remember it will really come handy for choice of certain medications in autoimmunity disorders and also understanding the clinical and lab findings in most immunodeficiency disorders. I will try my best to remain as brief as possible on selecting the basic science points which are directly related to clinical decision making. Now, I would like to draw your attention to a couple of points regarding the classification of primary immunodeficiency disorders, and that's there is not only significant overlap in terms of B and T cell dysfunction, but also we have disorders in which a defect in T cells and their function would eventually result in an impaired function of B cells, setting aside the number of disorders that are combined disorders of both B and T cells, such as SCID, severe combined immunodeficiency. Uh, one example is hyper-IgM syndrome, and you can see some even academic resources categorize it as T cell disorder and some as B cell disorder and some as combined disorder. The matter of fact is some forms of hyper-IgM are due to a T cell defect and some are due to B cell defect. So I would like you to mainly focus on pathogenesis as well as clinical presentation and not much on categorization. Also, I would like to, if I may, and very briefly, and with all due apologies, draw your attention to a very important basic science topic of T and B cell interaction, mainly focusing on the required co-stimulatory signals. And as I promised, I will be very brief, but this is essential for understanding of not only several of these immunodeficiencies and why we have such overlaps, but also will help your understanding of several immunomodulators and their functions when they, for example, manipulate these co-stimulatory signals, with famous example being abatacept, which is an inhibitor of co-stimulatory signal for T-cell activation, versus monoclonal antibodies against the decoy receptors for co-stimulatory signals used for the treatment of melanoma. Examples are pembrolizumab or epilumab. We will also briefly discuss the pharmacology of calcineurin inhibitors and interleukin-2 inhibition. So very briefly, remember T-cell activation requires MHC class 1 or 2 interaction with T-cell receptor. This is considered the main number 1 signal for T-cell activation. Now, even before talking about the co-stimulatory signals, I would like to draw your attention to an important molecule in T-cell receptor signal transduction, and that is CD3. Remember, CD3 activation will result in activation of calcineurin, and calcineurin is the regulator of interleukin-2 gene and receptor transcription and production. Remember, we will come back to this interleukin-2 several times in our immunodeficiency disorders and pharmacology of immunomodulators. So I want to give you a heads up that, for example, several immunodeficiencies, including SCID, are associated with defective interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain. 
Also, I would like you to remember that the function of several important immunomodulators such as cyclosporin, tacrolimus, and sirolimus, as well as monoclonal antibody basiliximab, all are related to inhibition of interleukin-2 transcription or antagonism to function of interleukin-2. By the way, do you remember what was the function of interleukin-2? It is a major cytokine that promotes growth of almost all cellular elements of immune response, mainly cytotoxic and helper T-cells, but also natural killer cells monocytes and B cells. So any inhibition or defect related to interleukin-2 can result in significant suppression of the cell-mediated arm of immune response. And that is simply the function of drugs such as cyclosporin, tacrolimus, sirolimus, and basiliximab. Another point that bridges us to pharmacology is when do we use immunosuppressors and when do we use recombinant cytokines that are immunostimulator? Well, whenever we want to suppress the excessive function of immune systems, such as autoimmune conditions or in transplant patients, we would like to use immunosuppressants and that's why we use cyclosporin, tacrolimus, sirolimus, basiliximab in patients with psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis or kidney transplant. On the other side, we use recombinant interleukin-2 to stimulate the immune system to treat conditions that will benefit from a stronger immune system, and that's cancer. Especially, we use interleukin-2 recombinant cytokine in what cancers? Renal sarcosinoma and metastatic melanoma. Do you remember the name of the recombinant interleukin-2? Aldeslukin. That's opposite of cyclosporin tacrolimus sirolimus basiliximab. I know it may sound too much of basic science, but remember this is the pharmacology extremely relevant for autoimmunity, rheumatologic disorders, cancer pharmacotherapy, and many more. At least I didn't go through all the molecular interactions of calcineurin, so don't get bored yet. Likewise, you may be provided a research experiment in which a researcher is studying the genetic defects on CD3 signal transduction and you are asked the results of this genetic defect would resemble the pharmacologic mechanism of what group of drugs and that's again calcineurin inhibitors why because cd3 signal transduction is involved in calcineurin activation okay moving to the co-stimulatory signals now we mainly talk about two co-stimulatory signals one is the co-stimulatory signal for t-cell activation and the other for b-cell activation so what's the t-cell co-stimulatory signal while interaction of t-cell receptor with mhc class 1 or 2 with the help of cd3 and either cd4 or cd8 are considered the primary signal for t-cell activation there is a second co-stimulatory signal for proliferation and survival of t-cells and that's mediated by cd28 on naive t-cells interacting with b7 subtype of molecules on antigen presenting cells now right here let's bridge to pharmacology what is the mechanism of abatacept abatacept is an immunoglobulin bond or soluble version of the core receptor for b7 in other words it will replace cd28 
from interacting with B7 and occupies the interaction sites on B7. That's exactly the function of the coil receptors, yeah? What is the result? Simply inhibition of T-cell activation. What's the well-known clinical use of abatacept in autoimmunity disorders, especially rheumatoid arthritis? Now, on the other side, we mentioned couple drugs used for the management of metastatic melanoma that also manipulate the system. Can you mention some examples and mechanisms? There are monoclonal antibodies against the naturally occurring decoy receptors of T-cell co-stimulatory signal. In other words, we have, as I mentioned, CTLA-4, and I want you to also remember another molecule, which is PD-1. These are the naturally occurring decoy receptors that again can occupy interaction sites on B7 and prevent CD28 on T cells to interact with B7 on antigen presenting cells, thus preventing the T cell activation. Now, if we have antibodies against these decoy substrates of B7, we facilitate interaction of CD28 with B7. Are you with me? The logic is simply this. If we prevent the decoy molecule, the main molecules will get the chance to interact with one another. We try to increase the probability of main co-stimulatory molecules to interact with one another instead of interacting with decoy receptors. So we make antibodies against the decoy receptors so that CD28 and B7 can freely interact with one another and significantly activate, proliferate, and help T-cell survival. This phenomenon will benefit in conditions where we need enhanced function of T-cell immune response, such as in cancer. And the example is one ipilimab or ipilimab, that's an antibody against CTLA-4, and pembrolizumab, an antibody against PD-1. Both of these are used for treatment of metastatic melanoma. Now, next co-stimulatory signals we need to discuss with strong clinical relevance for immunodeficiencies is B-cell activation signals. While cytokines released from T-cells can help the first steps in activation of B-cells, B-cells and all other antigen-presenting cells require a second or co-stimulatory signal, and that's mediated by interaction between CD4T on B-cells with CD4TL on T-cells. You need to know the following outcomes of interaction between CD4T and CD4TL. First and most important outcome for our discussion of immunodeficiencies is immunoglobulin class switching. If any component in CD4T-CD4TL interaction is impaired, immunoglobulin class switching would not happen. The other outcomes, of course, include secretion of other interleukins and cytokines that's required for further activation of T-cells, mainly interleukin-12 for T-helper-1 cells. But for now, remember, if class switching is not possible, what will be the outcome? Well, B-cells will only express their primary antigen receptor, which is IgM. Always remember, if you are asked what is the antigen receptor on mature but naive B-cells, that is IgM, which is monomeric type of IgM, together with IgD. So we have all other immunoglobulin levels reduced, but we have high levels of IgM. And now you can see a clear example of why hyper-IgM syndrome can be classified either as a B-cell disorder or T-cell disorder. While 
most cases of hyper IgM syndrome are X-linked and due to defect on CD40 ligand on T cells and therefore classified as a T cell disorder. A minority of cases are due to autosomal recessive defect on CD40 on B cells. Another point is regardless of the underlying mechanism, the final outcome will relate to B cells. And by that I mean even though the initial defect could happen on T cells, it will affect B cells and cause hyper IgM syndrome. Okay, with this background, we can now review immunopharmacology that I will do in this episode, and then we'll follow the review of primary immunodeficiency disorders in next couple episodes. So we discussed the medications that manipulate the interleukin-2 pathway either through inhibition of its transcription or blocking its receptor response. We even mentioned a research experiment manipulating CD3 and we mentioned that will also have similar effect. And here I just want to add a couple more points to the interleukin-2 pathway and one is if you happen to be provided any of these drugs that function against interleukin-2 and you are asked what primary immunodeficiency has the similar mechanism, remember that's a SCID, that's severe combined immunodeficiency in which the most common defect is due to a mutation on interleukin-2 receptor. Second point is I mentioned baciliximab, which is an antibody to interleukin-2 receptor. I would like you to remember daclizumab is also another monoclonal antibody that is specifically targeting a part of interleukin-2 receptor that is CD25, and they have two different clinical application. So beginning with these interleukin-2 response blockers, what's the mechanism of baciliximab once more? It's a monoclonal antibody to interleukin-2 receptor. Now talking about the drugs that interfere with interleukin-2 transcription or action, how can we compare and contrast mechanism of action of cyclosporine with that of tacrolimus? Both of these drugs are calcineurin inhibitors. However, one of them binds to FKBP, FK506 binding protein, and that's tacrolimus, while the other one, that's cyclosporine, binds to the cyclophilin. Now, you may want to skip this next question if you don't want to focus much on the basic science of this, but the question is, what is the mechanism of action for calcineurin? Remember, calcineurin is simply a phosphatase. Now, in order for the inflammatory cytokines genes to be transcribed and produced, we need activation of nuclear factor kappa B. For that to happen, we need to let NFAT, the nuclear factor of activated T cells, to interact with NF-kappa B and destroy its inhibitor, I-kappa B. Calcineurin is a phosphatase that removes the phosphate group from NFAT and allows it to interact and activate nuclear factor kappa B and therefore allows the transcription and production of inflammatory cytokines. Put it simple, calcineurin promotes production of inflammatory cytokines. Okay, so calcineurin inhibitors such as tacrolimus or cyclosporine prevent production of inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-2. Now, how do we compare the function of sirolimus with that of the previous one, cyclosporine and tacrolimus? Sirolimus 
which is known as rapamycin, inhibits part of the signaling pathway downstream interleukin-2 receptor function. Put it more precisely, it inhibits MTOR or mammalian target of rapamycin, which is just a signaling molecule downstream of the interleukin-2 receptor after interleukin-2 receptor interacts with interleukin-2. The result would be inhibition of response to interleukin-2. And you remember the response to interleukin-2 is mainly growth, proliferation, and survival of T-cells, but other components of cell-mediated immunity. So to put the entire circle in perspective, I want you to think of four steps. The first step is transcription and production of inflammatory cytokines. If we inhibit nuclear factor kappa B by calcineurin inhibitors, the cytokines genes won't be transcribed and interleukin-2 won't be produced at first place. But let's say interleukin-2 is produced. Next step is to prevent the interaction of interleukin-2 with its receptor by means of interleukin-2 antagonists. These are basiliximab or daclizumab. Daclizumab, more precisely, is a monoclonal antibody to CD25 component of interleukin-2 receptor. Now, let's say interleukin-2 is still capable of interacting with its receptor. However, we can intervene downstream the receptor in its signaling pathway that includes MTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin, thus preventing the function of interleukin-2, and that is the function of serolimus. That's the third stage manipulation. Now, let's say interleukin-2 is transcribed, it's interacted with its receptor, its function for activating cytokines involved in proliferation of T-cells is still intact. The next step that we can suppress the immune response is simply preventing DNA replication, thus preventing proliferation of T-cells and B-cells, and that's by means of purine nucleotide synthesis inhibitors, drugs such as mycophenolate, leflunamide, and azathioprine. These are four steps in which we can intervene through immunopharmacology to suppress the immune system, at least in our current model dealing with interleukin-2. Now, where is the target of corticosteroids? Because they are also our major immunosuppressor. Remember, corticosteroids are also inhibitor of NF-kappa-B, similar to calcineurin inhibitors. With this background, in the next episode, I'm going to review the clinical use, side effects, and other points about the most common immunopharmacologic agents. Again, the material covered in this episode will come handy when we are going to discuss primary immunodeficiencies as well as drugs categorized under immunosuppressor or therapeutic antibodies. The next episode will focus on a quick review of immunopharmacology and then I will begin the discussion of primary immunodeficiencies. 